Welcome, everybody. A few months ago, when this event was envisaged, the conversation with Andrew circulated around the title. The title was chosen because we didn't quite know how things were going then, but we knew it wasn't looking terribly good. Andrew used his great encyclopedic knowledge of music and chose an old Kinks song title, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? I think more appropriately nowadays, the REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It, might be somewhat more appropriate. First of all, I'd like to introduce Ellen Ray. Her research includes, appropriately, financial crises, international finance, and global imbalances. She's developed innovative models to forecast the dollar exchange rate. Helen will be talking about how we got into the current financial crisis. All right, so how did we get there? Now, it all started, I think, with pretty lenient macroeconomic factors. There was a high level of liquidity uh, in the world economy, due in particular to uh, the loose monetary policy that the U.S. has been pursuing since 2001. Uh, There was also a lot of um, capital outflows coming out of Asia after the Asian crisis uh, in search of of, uh, U.S. assets. All this, together with the uh, U.S. tax cuts, have led to low savings rate in the United States and uh, also to the so-called global imbalances, that is to say massive current account deficits of the U.S., as well as the housing bubble. Now, these uh, lenient macroeconomic conditions interacted with bad incentives in the financial markets. Well, 1999 saw the abolition of the Glass-Steagall Act, which, by erasing the borders between uh, commercial banking and investment banking, led to an accelerated move of uh, investment banks and shadow banks into risky business plans, which were very profitable for a while. Now, this was facilitated by the fact that investment banking fell outside the regulatory net to a large extent. This was also facilitated by the fact that credit rating agencies didn't really do their job properly because they couldn't keep up with financial innovation on one hand, and on the other hand, because they had massive conflicts of interest, being both counselors and also certifiers for banks. Now, all this resulted in... uh, good and bad financial innovation, and in particular in the spread of securitization and uh, the originate-to-distribute model. This also resulted, more to the point, in very high leverage ratios. At the time where liquidity was very cheap, high leverage ratios were easy to get to. Now, these macro conditions, together with a bad incentive in the financial sectors, interacted also more recently with what I would call policy mistakes. So we know that there was no really ex ante strategy to deal with the, stra- with the crisis when it started to unfold. And um, there were a lot of ad hoc responses which didn't manage to put out the fire. I also think that uh, the failure of Lehman Brothers was a fundamental error that uh, created a lot of uh, mistrust in the market and increased the perceived counterparty risk. Now, these three things, macroeconomic condition with a high level of liquidity, the bad incentives in the financial sector, as well as these policy mistakes in conjunction, I believe, led to the crisis. But it still doesn't explain how the crisis propagated itself and how it became so big. Now, here I think the key word is really deleveraging and what I would call the vicious spiral of deleveraging. How did that work? There was toxic assets spread around the world on balance sheets because of the originate-to-distribute model. Now, this toxic asset led to a decline in equity value. Because of that, the balance sheet of financial institutions had to shrink, and there was sales, massive sales of assets. This led to a decrease in the price of assets around the world, which led further to a decline in equity value and more fire sales of assets, etc., etc., etc. You see that as this vicious spiral kind of takes place, you can go down towards the brink of bankruptcy, and when you get there, the fear of counterparty risk increases and we see the interbank market and the money market collapsing. I believe this uh, vicious spiral is really the the important uh, mechanism behind everything that has happened, but what is so special also about this, uh, this crisis? Well, I think this crisis is special because it's on the back of financial globalization. Recently, uh, we have seen massive increase in cross-border asset holdings, especially among uh, G7 economies, and um, the contagion mechanism through balance sheets that I've just described can be especially powerful 
if you have a lot of cross-border holdings. This is what we have seen between the US and Europe. And as US asset prices go down, European institutions who hold some of these assets on their balance sheet are hurt. They sell their assets, European asset prices go down, this hurts in turn US assets, etc., etc. This is very powerful because of the large amount of cross-border investment. And I would conclude by, by saying that, as Paul Krugman puts it, there is a, an international financial multiplier which is at play. And I would add that it is a very powerful multiplier and also a very perverse one. Next up is Richard Porter's CBE. He's president of the Centre for Economic Policy Research, a network of 700 European economists. He is co-chairman and senior editor of Economic Policy, and his research in interests include international finance, European financial markets, and the euro. Richard is going to be talking to us about what's happening now in the international financial markets and what policies are required. We got where we are partly because of the subprime mess, partly because of securitization and the way it was done. The underlying difficulty is imperfect information, is lack of information, and that is what has ended up paralyzing the markets. The vicious circles, Hélène mentioned one, there are others, of course, that have been operating, uh, such as the fall in share prices leading to uh, rating downgrades, CDS spreads go up, funding costs go up, share price goes down, and you continue in that vicious spiral downward. The essential problem here is the opacity of these markets, the opacity of the securities, and in part, it's all accentuated by, being accentuated by marking to market and by the failures, indeed, of the credit rating agencies. So what was needed? Well, urgency, the first thing. These vicious spirals were getting worse by the day, and the evidence was very clear in the way in which banks were getting liquidity from the central banks and simply holding on to it, or re effectively redepositing it with the central banks at lower rates than they were borrowing at. That's a pretty strong signal that willing, they were willing to uh, 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 you know, let go of the arbitrage opportunities simply for liquidity. The TED spread, the LIBOR, OIS spread, the CDS spreads, all these things were signaling disaster. So one had, as quickly as possible, to reduce the perception of acute counterparty risk out there, to do that effectively ignoring the so-called moral hazard problem. Moral hazard had been paralyzing, to some extent, the actions of the authorities. They were worried that, you know, somewhere down the road, they'd find that they'd done the wrong thing and people were, were, having, were having bad incentives because of it. That was a mistake, a big mistake. Ultimately, they gave it up. So three key steps were to overcome the counterparty risk, one had to reliquify the money markets with guarantees. One had to recapitalize the banks and, of course, to extend deposit insurance. The financial integration that Hélène talked about, the increasing cross-border exposures, meant that international coordination of these measures was essential. So what has actually been done? Well, we had the famous UK plan, and it should be famous. It was really the beginning of the new start with proposals for recapitalization, for guarantees for new unsecured bank debt, with some conditions, of course, on executive pay, on dividend payments, and on the way in which the banks would then proceed to lend. This was followed by the G7 statement on Friday. There was a lot of disappointment with the G7 statement in the markets and among economists, but when the Eurogroup met with the UK very much in attendance, quite interesting phenomenon that all of a sudden emerged. Despite European reticence, uh, they finally started singing from the same hymn sheet. The UK proposals had, had given a template. That template was accceptive, and there was an addition, a particularly important addition, about a modification of the marking-to-market accounting rules. Um, the US, I haven't actually seen the screens in the past few hours, uh, but the U.S. was expected to announce today that nine major banks would doubtless voluntarily accept the stakes that the government would be taking in them. It's quite clear they were pushed very, very hard by the Treasury. And uh, the U.S. has already committed itself to purchasing commercial paper. Uh, the central banks will provide unlimited dollar lending. And the ECB is offering unlimited funding at the policy rate. So what's missing 
from this story? Well, I believe there should be much broader deposit guarantees. I believe there should be explicit proposals for dealing with cross-border banks. I think that one is going to have to develop principles for a triage among the financial institutions that some will be saved and some will not be saved. We have to be told how that's going to work. We have to be told how markets for the impaired securities are going to be created, at least in Europe. Nobody has talked seriously about dealing with the deep problems of the CDS markets, credit default swap markets, and uh, that, I think, is fairly urgent. I believe that we will need some fiscal stimulus because recession is coming. I believe that we should have programs in some of the European countries, at least, to help for help uh, distressed mortgages and in the United States. And there are some longer-term issues. And finally, will it work? Well, that depends on you, you and your colleagues and everybody else who reads the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. What are they going to think? This is fundamentally a crisis of confidence. If confidence is not restored by these measures, then we are still in deep, deep trouble. I think that it's reasonable to believe that there was confidence returning to the market. The CDS spreads were down, not very much reduction in the TED and, and LIBOR OIS spreads, but still some progress there. And I believe that if the re- interbank lending does start up again, then that will free up lending to the non-financials. We should then be able to avoid a systemic meltdown, but there should, will still be problems about dealing with cross-border rescue operations if, if, if they are needed. Some banks are simply too big to rescue. Tell it to Switzerland, right? Not just Iceland here, and even beyond those countries. There may be contagion to emerging market countries. There's some good contagion insofar as the examples set by the UK has pushed others to follow it. Finally, longer term, that 1900 billion, is that going to be result in a large fiscal burden? Of course, it's not 1900 billion bailout, right? The governments are acquiring assets. What are those assets going to be worth? Well, they may end up giving profits to the taxpayers rather than losses. We don't yet know. There will be likely be some fiscal burden. There was in Sweden, for example, at the beginning of the 90s when this happened. But it's too early to say yet whether that might be a serious long-run problem. One of the newest members of our faculty is Lucretia Reichlin. She is former Director General for Research at the European Central Bank. Her research is on forecasting and monetary policy. She designed the the Eurocoin Coincident Index on Economic Activity in the Euro Area and other innovative methods for understanding the business cycle developments in real time. And her talk this evening is going to be on the business cycle and the financial crisis. My task tonight is to talk to you about the real economy. And uh, I'm going to make three points. First of all, to, to be less catastrophic than my colleagues, there is still large uncertainty in the economic outlook. It is true that uh, forecasts have been revised downward, but uh, it's not clear yet uh, whether the recession is around the corner and how deep it will be. If we compare with other recession episodes, and that will be my second point, uh, we see a significant probability of a slowdown in the U.S., possibly a recession, because some of the characteristics in the financial sectors are the same as those characteristics that preceded recessions in the past. What will happen in Europe really depends on what will happen in the U.S., not surprisingly, but there is still uncertainty on the path uh, that the euro era will follow and the probability of, of a recession. Let me just talk to you about the IMF forecast and their revisions. Here I want to bring home a couple of points. From April to October, the GDP growth, these are annual growth rates for the U.S., have been revised upward, not downward. The reason why the forecast in October is higher is because probably this is the effect of the fiscal package, so that we can hope that with the appropriate macroeconomic response, there will be changes. Of course, if you look at the euro area profile, what the MF uh, predicts uh, is quite bad. In October, it predicts actually 0.2 year-on-year growth rate for 2009, down from uh, the prediction in April of 1.9. I have some doubts about uh, this profile, and uh, I will try to argue why. 
Let's talk about the recession, the U.S. recession first. Uh, here I want to quote uh, a very interesting recent IMF studies, which uh, uh, analyzed 28 credit crunches, 28 housing busts, 58 equity prices busts, 122 recessions in 21 in advanced countries between 1970 and 2007. And what do they find? Well, it's not necessarily true that the financial crisis lead to recessions. Only few financial crises lead to recessions. There are more financial crises than recessions. However, if we look at this particular episode, we can see some, some commonality. For example, credit rations and asset prices are very similar than in past recessions, but there are other things which are not similar, and this in particular is the sort of the balance sheets of the corporate sector. So the, the corporate sector seems to be in healthier positions, and there are also uh, differences in the macro outlook, for example, the fact that the real interest rates are particularly low. Uh, we also know, however, that when recessions are uh, preceded by financial crisis, then they, they tend to be worse. Now, what about the euro area? We know from uh, CPR studies, actually, that recession in the euro area follow U.S. Re recession. So what happens in the U.S. tends to kind of spill over in the euro area, but with a lag, okay? So and this is very important to understand the profile. Also, they are longer, but they are less pronounced. They are less severe. Now, okay, so I want to use this robust thing, and I'm going to propose you the following exercise. I'm going to estimate the probability of a recession in the euro area using uh, the output profile from 2009 onwards that we observe in the 1970 recessions, and then I'm going to use the output profiles uh, uh, which we uh, saw in the U.S. in the 2000 recession, which was a much milder and much shorter recession. So if what we will see in the U.S. will correspond to the 1970 crisis, then you will see a probability of larger than 50% of a recession will occur in the euro area only in the second quarter of 2009. Now, in the other scenarios that uh, the monetary policy package, the fiscal package, uh, and, uh, and the recapitalization uh, measures that have been taken are going to work, Actually, if, and if, so if the slowdown will be only comparable with 2000 and, uh, 2001, then actually the, the euro era may miss the recession. And uh, with this very optimistic uh, uh, note, I would like to conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Lucrezia. And now, finally, but by no means least, Andrew Scott, editor of the Economic Journal, former advisor to the Bank of England, Her Majesty's Treasury, the Treasury Select Committee, his expertise includes monetary and fiscal policy, business cycles, debt management, and financial markets. Talking about how are things going to go forward. Thank you, Mark, and uh, thank you all for turning up. It's very good to see so many familiar faces and to know that you still have an appetite for macroeconomics. Uh, it's been a good time to be a macroeconomist recently. We spend much less time at the beginning of class motivating people why they need to be interested in macroeconomics, which is, which is great. What I'm going to try and do is look into the future. Now, I, I've sort of called this part of the talk, Will the World Be Nice Again? Many of you will be familiar with Mervyn King's an acronym, NICE standing for a non-inflationary, consistently expansionary world. And sort of, I think, well, one of the things I want to say is we may well look back over the last 10 years, a bit like we look back in the 1950s, as we call the 1950s a golden age, a period of strong, sustained growth and low inflation. And the nice decade was sort of, perhaps we'll look at it in the same way. It was a very, you know, there's always booms, there's always busts. But that last 10 years was probably going to be unusually good in retrospect. Mervyn King is referring to the nice, the non-inflationary consistent expansion decade. The idea being that central banks didn't have to raise interest rates aggressively to get rid of inflation and so kill off a business cycle expansion. That the forces of better central banking, globalization and technology kept inflation low and so interest rates were low and stable, and then further given a kick by global liquidity, creating very low interest rates. So we're going to get a recovery. Who knows how long this downturn will be, whether it will be a recession or not, but there will be a recovery. But what will that expansion look like? That's what I want to try and have some conjectures about. I think it's important to try and disentangle the financial side of things, the liquidity and the regulation, from the macro side. But the obvious point to make is inflation and macroeconomic uncertainty have returned, and that will make the next decade, the next expansion, rather different. In terms of, sort of the immediate future, I hope that we might be near the beginning of the end 
of the financial crisis, but we're probably just at the end of the beginning of the macro crisis. This is where the serious bad news about the macro economy starts to come through, and that may mean the recoveries in the asset markets the last couple of days will be a, a bit more volatile going forward. But I want to look beyond this sort of downturn and look at the next recovery. It's a line I've been pushing for a while. We're going to see a rise of regulation, what I've called here re-regulation. Going back to trying to achieve some of the aims that governments have done in the past, but in a new way. And it's fairly obvious when the masters of the universe are being nationalised that government action has reclaimed its legitimacy. Governments can be much more confident about imposing their will on markets. I think we've also seen, as a consequence of that, governments being more prepared to shift away from rules. And I think this has been a big macroeconomic phenomenon of the last few years. Inflation targeting, fiscal rules. We're going to see much greater emphasis upon governments showing discretion. And I think that will bring quite a lot of institutional reform. Perhaps the second point, basically everyone now knows that business cycle uncertainty is back. We'll see the equity risk premium become much more substantial, not just in the near term, but going forward too. I think longer term, I'm not suggesting, despite today's inflation numbers, that the central bank should worry about inflation right now. But longer term, we're going to have to see a rise in inflation expectations. I think that means, yet again, the long end of the yield curve will shift upwards. Why will there be an increase in inflation expectations? Well, one can sort of quibble about um, you know, the, the, the inflationary implications of the bank bailout. But I think there are other reasons. The first is inflation today in the UK is at 5.2%. So this is a period when the government was settled, the central bank was set on controlling inflation. They haven't. So we have to allow for the fact that central banks can't always control things. Secondly, in the week that inflation reached 5.2%, central banks around the world have been cutting interest rates. It's clear that there are circumstances in which they don't care just about inflation. And although central banks will try and rebuild that credibility going forward, I think that the markets will say, well, perhaps we shouldn't have been so aggressive in choosing as our forecast for inflation for the next 30 years, the lowest inflation we've seen in the last 35 years. Point four fits in with the re-regulation theme. We've seen intellectually big trends in economics away from the idea of homo economicus, this logical person who draws conclusions from logical thought, and started looking more at behavioral issues in economics. There's a sort of a mood around that if you look at the way the banks behave and the way the consumers behave, they didn't handle themselves very well in a world of rapidly rising asset prices where lots of leverage was available. And so we breed this sort of tendency to, to bubbles. Schiller has written quite, I think, well on this. And so I can imagine a lot of re-regulation trying to tackle those behavioral biases in people. There does seem to be a consensus around that we should try and tackle the root causes of bubbles and one way of doing that would be to start to introduce some counter-cyclical, sorry, pro-cyclical capital adequacy ratios to make sure that leverage behaves counter-cyclically. Thank you very much, Andrew. We're going to go into the Q&A session now. First of all, the gentleman in the corner. Data Sengupta from Sloan 2004. Seeing the effect of Asian liquidity uh, starting this crisis, to quote the words of, an Asia, of a Chinese communist uh, uh, party official who said that U.S. drowned itself in... Chinese liquidity. I would like to know your views on it. And going forward, what do you see countries like China, Middle East, Russia, and India should do with all the three trillion plus foreign exchange reserves that they're sitting on? In the uh, lenient macroeconomic conditions I mentioned right at the beginning, so um, there, is a, there was a big abundance of uh, world liquidity, which came in particular for the Asian economies. After the Asian crisis, most of the financial system of Asian countries was wiped out, and as a result, a lot of Asian savings actually found their way towards the U.S. markets, bringing huge capital flows to the U.S. economy, and some studies put the benefits to the U.S. borrower of something like 100 basis points discount. So I believe there was a, a big role, actually, for the Asian liquidity in lowering the real interest rate in the United States and in increasing those uh, liquidity buff, if you want, of the U.S. economy and in uh, feeding the, the housing bubble that was, that was taking place. Now, looking forward, so there is quite a lot of liquidity still in, in China, as we know, uh, $1.7 in, in reserves. Uh, there is also a lot of liquidity in oil exporting economies, and uh, so we have sovereign wealth funds, which uh, have a lot of cash, and the hope, I guess, is that uh, sometime soon, uh, some of this liquidity will, could find its way again to recapitalize some of the banks. Uh, unfortunately, the sovereign wealth funds that invested in the banks so far have lost money, so <laughs> they got burnt a little bit, so we were not ready to invest quite yet again. 
I would say one of the one of the other implications I was referring to about the difference going forward may well be that we might be in the early stages of seeing the U.S. not completely lose its role as an international currency, but clearly that will be being chipped away. And I think this first point about the sovereign wealth funds is a good example. They're already starting to diversify, not just buying U.S. bonds. They've started buying U.S. equity in the past. I think they're probably waiting for markets to bottom out. But I think a much broader geographic spread will also occur. Tony Roger, picking up the last point, what I find difficult to understand is why the U.S. dollar over the last three months has strengthened against other currencies rather than weakened, as most pundits predicted. And second question, if I may, we've said a lot about the outlook for the euro area and the USA, but not very much about the UK and where that fits into the whole picture. Indeed, this could come a little bit as a surprise that the dollar has been strengthening in the past weeks. I think it's still the, um, the safe haven effect uh, of the dollar that, after all, has, has been and is still the main international currency. Now, whether actually the shock that we are seeing right now will be enough to change that in the future, you know, is possible. As the market reassess in particular the fiscal effect of the bailout plans, uh, that may well start to displace a little bit more the, the role of the, of the U.S. dollar as the main international currency. And in that case, there would be uh, a lot more uh, investment in, uh, in particular in euro uh, area assets, uh, given the size of the euro area financial markets. The other side of this is indeed the euro side. And the actions of the past few days may enhance considerably the credibility of the euro area as a monetary authority and as a, as a unitary authority. It's quite clear any calculations, and I've done some research on this, in fact, um, any calculations you make uh, suggest that um, the world, that, that reserve holders are overweighted and have been for a long time in dollars. That has shifted somewhat since the inter introduction of the euro, but not, not as much as any reasonable calculations, as I say, of optimal portfolios would suggest. But the shift into the euro depends in part, as I, say, I said on, at the beginning, on the credibility of the euro as a long-run asset. Uh, and uh, indeed, the financial markets in the euro area have improved out of all recognition since 1999. But we're now, we're going to see the real test over the next few months of uh, whether the euro area can avoid a cross-border financial institution problem that would be seriously disturbing. Let me just say a few things about the UK. Um, the UK is a small open economy, so for the outlook of the world, it doesn't matter that much, but of course the world matters for the UK. <laughs> So what we know about the UK is that uh, historically the business, the business cycle has been closer to, to, to the US than to, to the euro area, although this has changed recently, which makes the UK a very difficult economy to forecast. It's very volatile. The financial system in the UK has more similarity with that of the US than that of the euro area in terms of financial development, arms length financial system, as they say. This is why the numbers for the UK have been uh, worse than the number for the euro area. Just a, a couple of things. One on, on the role of the euro. I think Richard's right. I think the events of last week have made the euro area look very smart compared perhaps to the US, which is good news. Uh, I think the only thing I'm slightly worried about the euro going forward is whether the sort of the size of these fiscal bailouts is going to put some tensions on the government bond markets, which may start to drive some pressures. We may, in a worse scenario, see some bond runs occurring if people start questioning commitment to the euro area. But other than that, I think the euro will weather this better than the, the, the dollar. In terms of the UK, the UK has a very large financial sector, and we know that that financial sector is going to be a lot smaller at the end of this. We're going to see the end of you know, uh, mortgage-only banking institutions. We're going to see fewer banks around, less leverage. So that will mean the UK will get a bigger hit than most. And, of course, the UK looks like its house prices are going to have one of the larger falls, certainly compared to continental Europe. So it's easy to sort of you know, focus on the really awful news about the UK. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that, to my mind, give some call for optimism. The first is sterling's fallen, which would be a big boost to exports. Uh, and the second thing is that falling house prices doesn't necessarily mean negative equity, and negative equity doesn't necessarily mean falling consumption. And the last time we had a, a big fall in the housing market in the UK was late 80s, early 90s, 
that also coincided with a huge increase in interest rates uh, of around about five percentage points. I think that's an awful combination. Whereas this time around, it would appear that we're probably likely to get falling interest rates rather than rising interest rates. So in terms of the UK outlook, there's lots of bad things to focus on, but I don't think our hit will be as bad as the, the US for those two factors, sterling falling and interest rates coming down. What uh, we've seen in history uh, is, in some periods, dominance, world dominance by a single currency. There was a period when sterling clearly dominated. But even then, even during the period uh, leading up to 1913, actually in the foreign exchange markets, the French franc and the uh, Reichsmark were significant currencies. Then you had the period in the interwar period, which is not a good precedent because both sterling and the dollar were significant international currencies, and that was a period of huge instability, of course. Need that be the case if we have the euro pretty much at the same status of the dollar as an international currency? I don't believe so. Uh, there's no, I don't think that that, histori- that, that uh, interwar experience need be replicated in that regard anyway. And what I would see, in fact, is that the euro playing a much greater role, for example, in the pricing of some commodities, uh, in terms of reserve holding, again, there will be further movement towards the euro. In the foreign exchange markets, however, the do- that's where the dollar is most dominant as a vehicle currency. Uh, and uh, that role is going to be, I-, I believe, for a long time. But in other respects, in invoicing and so forth, I think we will see shared, uh, shared international currency status. Let me just comment on one thing. I, I'm not sure that, uh, that any of us said that uh, what happened is the fault of the U.S. I mean, I think that uh, uh, Ellen said that uh, a lot of the things that happened may be explained by the fact that real interest rates were low for, for a long time. They were low, particularly in the U.S., but they were also low in the euro area. Uh, on the other hand, you have to look at the time. I mean, now we know a lot of things, but uh, those were years of moderate inflation and a very low output volatility. So those were the good times. And uh, very few people were saying you should lower interest, you should increase interest rates when inflation was actually very stable, the inflation expectation very well anchored. I mean, you, we know now that low interest, uh, real interest rates uh, are an incentive for risk-taking behavior, exposed that this is a very nice explanation, but, uh, you know, this was also to, to a certain extent financial innovation, risk-sharing, and, uh, you know, the, and a lot of people believe in the market, so that... Uh, you should also, it's, it's too easy to say this now, okay? So it was a party and uh, everybody enjoyed it at the time. So we, had, we had a good time. But no, I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. What I would say, though, is to stress a point that uh, came out of what Elen was saying, and that is that the U.S. current account deficits were the big global imbalance. And those global imbalances mattered, and they were a contributing, major contributing factor to the disorder that we see now in terms of the Asian countries. The counterpart of, those, of, of the U.S. current account deficit was the Asian surpluses. Um, I just add, I think that you know, if we're looking for the causes of the bubble, we're here for a long, long while. Um, but I think you know, lower interest rates only part of it. Low risk premium uh, was a key part. And I think the reason why we have high inflation at the moment is as much to do with the monetary policy of the BRICS, as the question was coming up earlier, and the world increase in liquidity and low risk premium originated from there. The point about the globalization, I think, is a good one, though, because one would expect that the global downturn is going to be bad news for globalization. We've already seen problems about globalization with growing pressures against immigration. We've seen the World Trade Organization fail to get its round back together again. And so one would expect a sort of a global downturn to be even worse news for globalization. I I think that's right, but I think there's a few other things that have been interesting. The first is, I think coordination has probably been better than we all expected, uh, certainly over the last week. Secondly, we are seeing governments taking center stage at the moment. And that's probably one of the main things that people have been complaining about with globalization. The governments haven't been leading the process some more. And it may well be that as a consequence of this, we'll start to see some further reform on our global institutions. And in particular, I thought the IMF would be uh, ripe for some reform in terms of enlarging its brief. 
which might actually be helpful for globalisation. Um, you've alluded to governments playing more of a role in the global economy. What other political implications do you see from what's gone on in the last few weeks, apart from Gordon Brown having a spring in his step again, by all accounts? That's the, uh, that's the UK side. I'll leave that to, to Andrew. To Andrew. Uh, but, but, the, but the broader point about politics is extremely important. And what we're going to see, Andrew was talking about re-regulation, uh, there, is going to be treme- there is already tremendous political pressure, uh, tremendous uh, resentment of, if you like, uh, Wall Street uh, from the, on the part of Main Street um, and the analogs in the UK and elsewhere. And this is nothing, nothing new. We've seen this historically, again, many times. It's very accentuated right now. The result is going to be a lot of is going to be a lot of re-regulation and new regulation, and some of it's going to be bad regulation. Just give you one example. Uh, regulation of hedge funds. Hedge funds are an easy scapegoat, um, and uh, it's very hard to say that hedge funds have contributed to, significantly, to the present turmoil, honestly. Uh, but they're a good target. Um, you know, you shoot the speculators. That's historically too. Of a standard reaction, shoot the speculator. Um, the credit rating agencies, actually, my view, indeed, is that they failed dramatically. Tremendous changes need to be made, but they're not going to be made by regulation. What that sector needs is competition. It's, a, it's an oligopoly of the worst kind, uh, and, uh, uh, and that's been promoted, in effect, by the role that the credit rating agencies have been given regulation, in effect. Um, nevertheless, in Europe at least, and probably in the United States, we're going to see more regulation of credit rating agencies. That is just a bad idea. From the point of view of the euro area, um, there are some good news. I mean, I I think that this crisis has shown very clearly that uh, it's very difficult to have a single monetary policy without some coordination on fiscal policy. They're all uh, issues of, uh, you know, these people getting together all of a sudden and trying to, you know, work out measures to coordinate and measures for, uh, you know, recapitalization of the banks and so on, or coordinated fiscal policy is actually good news. So it's the virtue of bad times, as they say. Another virtue of bad times is that I read it in, in a very recent CPR paper, that good news is that a lot of smart people who used to work in the city are now going to do something much more, uh, you know, socially useful than to work <laughs> in the financial sector. We think they're going to work for law firms. For law firms Just a joke, of course. Uh, you could all become <laughs> academics. It's good, good news for, the, the, for business schools, I guess. I mean, on the politics, we've talked about sort of the confidence that governments will get from this the sort of um, uh, the move towards re-regulation. I, I'm not sure if there will sort of be a you know, sort of big left or right wing swing, although one might in retrospect perhaps see this as possibly the end of the conservative counter-revolution with pushing of deregulation. I think probably the biggest political impact will be coming from fiscal policy because um, you know, whatever the degree of the fiscal burden is, it's certainly eliminated any scope for governments to do tax cuts or to spend a lot of money in other areas which means that fiscal choice is going to be more divisive. Um, so I think that's going to sharpen some of the political choices that governments have to make. That will probably be the biggest political implication. Hello, my name is John Royden. Is the uh, deliberate monetization of our debt a, a good get-out-of-jail card, and should we play it? Um, well, I, I guess there's a number of ways to look at this. The first is that what we're obviously going to see is a huge increase in the amount of government debt. Uh, but it seems to be quite high demand for that at the moment. So you can increase the supply if the demand is there without the inflationary implications. It's when things return to normal that it starts to become more complicated. And the other issue, which I think Richard touched on, is really you know, the government hasn't handed over a large cheque. It's taken back some assets. Um, and although it's going to obviously lose in some areas for those investments, I would be mightily surprised if the uh, net impact... Uh, over 10, 15 years, has saved more than minus 5% of GDP. And a government that can spread its borrowing over 50 years, that's, that's kind of nothing. So I, I'm not sure that there's going to be big inflationary implications 
uh, from these measures. And of course, there is a risk that if the banks do all collapse, then the government will have to monetize the debt. It seems to be in that world that that's the least of our worries. So uh, in a way, it's kind of a good bargain that the, the government's doing. Uh, I'm particularly interested in Asia. If there's ever a very bad example of what can happen after asset inflation, the last 20 years of Japan doesn't bode very well for the rest of us. Um, yes, and I think I mean, Lucrezia showed you how long uh, downturns can last after a banking crisis, and Japan, of course, is one of those nasty ones. Uh, it, when I, I gave you to give a lecture on Japan as part of the course we all teach on called World Economy, and what was striking was that uh, I'd get lots of American professors sort of guesting on this and saying the reason why it all went wrong in Japan was they did nothing for six or seven years. There was just political indecision between the regulators, the politicians, and the finance ministries. And so they didn't do enough quickly enough. And it was only uh, when Takanaka comes in in 98 that you start to see things improve. And then within three or four years, it's all sorted out. Three or four years is kind of standard for a banking resolution. So it was interesting, of course, then when Congress turned down the Paulson plan, that uh, here perhaps was a situation where we didn't get coordination either in the US. And I'm sure that's what triggered also the sort of sudden concern about Europe, whether Europe would be able to coordinate as well. Um, I think the general feeling is that given the scale of the banking rescue plan that's been implemented, hopefully we can say the world isn't going to do a Japan. Um, and I think that's right. I think early decisive action has been taken compared to Japan, so we can rule that out as the, as the sort of the, the other nightmare. I guess the only other thing I'd point about Japan is quite interesting looking at what actually happened in Japan. Because obviously it was horrendous for people who had equity. It was horrendous for people who had property. But the economy itself kind of just didn't do much. It certainly didn't collapse. And it really, within a decade, had about three or four short little business cycles. The growth was anemic, but you rarely saw, you know, it wasn't three, four, five years of negative growth. It was just a very, very anemic economy, despite the fact that the banking system, land prices, property prices, and equity market were falling very, very sharply. Um, so I think, again, it's worthwhile distinguishing between the financial side of Japan and the macro side of Japan. But hopefully both scenarios we can uh, rule out given the, plan, the actions that have happened recently. Hanna Ripachkova, MBA 2006. As Helen pointed out, in the past the growth was also driven by the excessive uh, borrowing in the Western markets. And I just wonder, as, um, as the leverage needs to come down, uh, where does the panel feel the, the growth of demand will come from? The question is about where will growth come from if we're going to slow down from leverage borrowing. I mean, obviously, the economy is going to slow down because there's less debt around. I think you what's mean real growth? Yeah. Real growth. Yeah. Uh, one of the, um, the, the, the studies that Lucrezia was uh, highlighting by the IMF looks at what happens to the economy after a housing market bubble bursts or housing market crashes. Of course, not surprisingly, you find consumption contributes less growth, but still grows. I mean, you know, the, the extraordinary thing about the, the business cycle is how rare it is for consumption growth to go negative. Now, we may get that in the U.S., but really the whole financial system is geared up to try and protect the consumer. Uh, you know, job losses aren't as big as they might be in a downturn. Wages are held. Uh, and if you like, it's the, the corporate sector that often gets the credit turned off. And so it's investment that tends to bear the brunt. But you see a slowdown in consumption growth. You see a very, very sharp fall in residential investment, which means the growth comes from the government sector and the growth comes from exports. And, of course, what's difficult this time around is if we have a global slowdown, where's that growth going to come from? Um, but there are, as you know, the crisis says, there are other sources of finance other than just debt financing. And the corporate sector this time around, to some degree, has better balance sheets than in the past. The unusual thing about the last boom was the degree to which the non-financial corporate sector was actually lending money to the household sector and the government sector and the financial sector, which is, in a way is a sign of just how wrong the financial system was. It's meant to be the other way around. As I said, the, the position, the balance sheets of uh, corporations uh, is, has not uh, weakened substantially. I mean, this is not what we see in the data now. It may come, but, you know, it's still the position is relatively strong, especially if you, we compare with... Uh, previous episodes. But I think that probably, uh, you know, the, the world economy would need uh, a fiscal stimulus, and this, uh, you know, in the, in, in the U.S. we have seen that, and uh, I mean, I, I definitely hope that in the euro area something like that will, will come. That's One qualification, and this is in the nature of a question, really, to Lucrezia. Um, I think, I know that the data on large 
non-financial corporations, um, and that's quite right, that their financial positions are good. But small and medium-sized enterprises are feeling a squeeze already. Uh, I think that's clear, and not just in the UK. Um, you go around Europe, uh, and it's quite, it's quite obvious. You know, they're dependent in good part on bank lending for working capital. Uh, I think we're, we're going to see some, some damage in that part of the economy. Andrew? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, there are many people who argue, I mean, Neil Ferguson, I mean, one of them, that the financial markets and economists downplay the risk of conflict. And probably at this point in time, everyone's keen not to downplay risk anymore. So uh, in that sense, I can, I can see this issue becoming more and more important in a way that it hasn't done the last 20 years or so. But in terms of the, the link between defense expenditure and inflation, I think I'd say the immediate link is quite small. Uh, defense expenditure, although it's a huge number of billions, isn't really a big part of the economy. And so other than driving up sort of key commodities, which may well depend upon that sector, I don't think it'll have big inflationary implications. But the, the military implications and the risk in that scenario may be something that markets are more in a mood to focus on right now. And if Russia wants to bail out not just Iceland, but a few of the other economies that might get in trouble, uh, emerging market economies that might be collateral damage in what we're seeing out there, um, I think that would be just great. One final question here. A question about behavioral economics. Uh, Andrew mentioned it already. might become a little bit more um, important. Prisoner's dilemma many banks face at the moment, certainly after Christmas, I think, that a lot of working capital facilities are going to be reviewed and uh, people will look at uh, maybe closing off some, you know, some businesses that, that will not possibly face a lot of demand in the next year. What is a micro type of situation? And the prison creates a prisoner's dilemma. Many banks on the, on the street might create some real macro issues. So how, how can regulation, or how can governments, what can be done? Apparently I'm under the behavioral guy. In terms of the prisoner's dilemma, you're talking about a coordination problem. Uh, and obviously that's where governments get... You know, trying to cut interest rates, to try and do fiscal stimulus, and in terms of taking over the banks and trying to direct their lending or to make suggestions to maintain lending volumes, is how you try and overcome that coordination problem. But in general, you're absolutely right. This problem, whether it be the subprime crisis or the, the more recent crisis, has now gone on too long and gone too far that now it's affecting the real economy. And it's indisputable that we will see the real economy uh, being hit, we know the financial system needs to deleverage, and it's done that spectacularly and with several casualties along the way. And we also know the other side of that is the consumer and the corporate sector will need to deleverage. And that will lead to the, exactly the macro channels that you were talking about. In terms of um, the regulation that I was, was hinting at, I don't think we're going to see governments in a rush to sort of do consumer protection legislation. Uh, I think, you know, well, let's get the patient out of intensive care first before we start thinking about changing the patient's lifestyle, and the patient here is the banking system. Um, I do also think that neither the, the financial system nor the consumer is going to be in a hurry to try and borrow a load of money. Uh, they've been scarred uh, all round. But when recovery kicks in, I think we'll start to see, well, why did we find ourselves in a situation where people were taking both consumers and banks. It's not the banks by any means that we should blame entirely. Why do consumers and banks respond to rising asset markets by saying, let's take massively leveraged bets, and as asset prices rise, let's increase our leverage? And there does seem to be a common pattern about markets that encourage that response. And that does fit in with a lot of the behavioral work, uh, and I'm not saying here we're behaviorists, but that says that people do make critically wrong decisions about the future and about uncertainty. And perhaps those two things together may make real estate very, very dangerous for the macroeconomy and the individual. So I think in the next recovery, we may well see the influence of that behavioral work in trying to get some regulation to, to restrict people, self-control people. Given that the leveraging has played such a, a big role in this current crisis and the deleveraging on the downside, but as, as a asset prices were going up, there was increased demand for financial assets, further purchases of assets, prices were going up, etc. That was uh, the, the exact opposite of my vicious spiral of, of, of the beginning. I do think that in the future, uh, regulators are going to be uh, considering things like putting some bounds probably on leverage ratios. That's going to be probably on the table. And I think there's going to be also some more regulation, some more, some clever 
uh, or more clever value-at-risk models, taking more into account uh, correlations across uh, movement in asset prices, uh, effect of uh, uh, change in position of some financial institutions on other financial institutions. So all, everything that has to do with co-movements, aggregate movements in the market, I think, uh, will be more incorporated into regulators' thinking. And these things are extremely difficult to model, especially from a quantitative point of view, but I, I think that's the way, uh, you know, when things calm down, uh, that's where regulators are going are to try to make progress. Since we've come to the end uh, and uh, we haven't yet raised the biggest coordination problem of all, I want to raise it. What about at the global level, global governance? I think what we've seen and what we've seen and what we're seeing in Washington now uh, with the IMF, uh, uh, World Bank meetings and so forth, uh, is that the existing system that we have for dealing with these matters uh, is deeply flawed. The G7 was not the right venue to deal with uh, the issues that we've been talking about tonight. And out of it, therefore, emerged a rather bland communique. Uh, I was asked by a journalist this afternoon uh, what I thought were the prospects of a new Bretton Woods. I think we will hear a lot of talk about this over the next few months. Uh, I would suggest that it's, it's the big issue back there if we can overcome the, uh, the, the really crisis aspect that we're, we're in now. It's the big issue out there. Uh, I would hope that whatever the authorities do, uh, however they try to push that forward, that they prepare it very well. The worst thing we could find would be trying to sit everybody down, uh, the G20 or even a larger group uh, down, without actually having a clear plan for going ahead and trying to sort out some of these issues of global governance, which, um, which are clearly, as I say, going to be center stage, if only as a result of, of, of the crisis we've seen and the way in which it's being dealt with. I'd like to draw the formal part of the evening to a close and back over to my colleague Sarah. It's the easiest part of an alumni event when we wind up the evening and move from a discussion around liquidity to one that happens over a glass of liquid. Uh, but before I invite you to that, thank you to all of you for joining us tonight and making this such a terrific audience and event. Uh, will you please join me? as we offer a small and liquid token of our appreciation to our panel, Richard, Lucrezia, Andrew and Helene from the London Alumni Club to thank us for their time and thoughts this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.